Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to episode 4-314 of the Run Run Live podcast. And yes, it's been a month or two fortnights since you last received a Run Run Live podcast. But now your wait is over. As you sleep, I silently package up another greasy ball of endurance sports content and slide it down the pipes of the internet to your electronic familiar. And it's been a weird month indeed. In my last missive from the field, I told you how I had lost my computer, a Microsoft Surface Pro 3 that I've been using since last November, and how with that missing computer went all the files for episode 4-313, referred to as the lost masterpiece. This week, two weeks later, After I had gotten a new Surface, procured all the magic software that I require for my Klanenstein audio wrangling, and tickled my ganglia into producing today's replacement show, Delta sent the old Surface back to me. Yeah, I got it back. So next week, I'll double down and release the stillborn episode 4-313, and it will be our little game of time travel, you and I. And what's crazy is how attached I am to these laptops, these – well, it's a tablet, but it's kind of a laptop. I use it like a laptop. When I lost it, it was like losing a friend. I went through, you know, the denial, the anger, the grief, the acceptance, and then it shows up, right? You know? My training, my training has been epic over the last couple of weeks. I'm back on the mountain bike and back in the water and back on the trails. And as you didn't hear in the missing episode, but you may hear in the future, I decided to get off the road marathon merry-go-round and have some fun this summer. And fun I am having by the bucket load. I signed up for an Olympic triathlon in mid-July that is that where I line up with nations from all over the world and march around the infield representing my country in full splendor? No, it is not. It is about a mile swim, a 22-mile bike ride, and a 10K, so twice as long as a sprint try. Swimming is my weakest sport, and weakest is probably the wrong phraseology. Swimming is the part where I have the least racing confidence. I've been trying to get into the pool and do some drills uh, to warm up a little bit to this because I haven't swum in almost two years. And I'll tell you a story. Last Saturday, Coach had a workout for me, which was a 1,700-yard pool workout, you know, with all the 300s and 50s and all these little things you're supposed to do. He had that on the schedule for me and also a two-hour bike. And it was a nice day last Saturday, so I decided to instead – just go down to the pond, the local pond, and and swim it and do it sort of as a brick, a swim bike brick. So meaning do that, do the open water swim in the pond and then take my mountain bike out for a tour. Seemed to be a lot less hassle there. So I eyeballed the pond and I guess that it was probably, you know, a third of a mile across. 
I got my wetsuit on and I set out. And after I warmed up, I fell into a nice rhythm and the pond is still cold enough to be super comfortable, maybe 70, 75 degrees. And the water was black and murky and full of pollen. And I was basically looking at nothing in a sensory deprivation. And the sky was overcast, so the sun wasn't in my eyes when I rolled to breathe. And when I had been doing a lot of pool work a couple years ago, when I had that plantar fasciitis uh, incident, I managed to work out a three-stroke alternate breathing pattern. So stroke, 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 breathe, right. One, two, three, breathe, left, and so on and so forth. So miracle of miracles, this seems to have corrected most of my slice. When I'd pull my head up in sight, I was swimming fairly true towards the horizon. With my old two-stroke cadence, I basically swam in a circle, and I had to sight and correct constantly. And the cold water flowed by in murky silence, dark and deep, and the gray skies muffled the world outside my goggles. The dry wetsuit kept me easy, balanced, and true in the water. The earplugs completed the deprivation, and I fell into sort of a deep meditative practice and pulled silently across the lake. When I got close to the end, I turned around and I pulled all the way back. There was a bit of a headwind and a little bit of a chop on the return, but I was relaxed and strong, considering it was like my third time in the water in two years. I had stuffed my Garmin up under my swim cap to see if I could at least get the distance estimate. It won't pick up your heart rate through the water, but it will track the GPS. And if you put it under your cap, it gets jostled around less. You get a better reading. So when I climbed out of the water at the town beach at the end, feeling tired but settled, I checked my watch. And according to Mr. Garmin, I had been in the water for 56 minutes and had swum almost a mile and a half. Really? I was blown away. Even if it's off by 30%, that's a hell of a swim for my third time in the water. So then I hopped on my 29er and I rode the trails for a couple hours more for a heck of a workout. And the lesson here, my friends, is that your body doesn't forget the training. Once you have the endurance engine and the endurance mindset, it doesn't go away. I rolled out tools that I had trained into my body in the winter of 2013, and my machine remembered them. I hope that Olympic try lets us wear wetsuits. My two-piece leopard print bikini just has too much drag. I prefer the wetsuit. I went for a run the next day in the trails, and it was supposed to be like an hour and 45 to two hours. I've started taking Buddy for the first two-ish mile loop, and then I stick him back in the house and go out for the rest. He's getting old and his hips bother him. So 20 minutes is enough to get him some exercise but not ruin his day. So there I am. I'm pumping up this little hill on the trails behind my house with my hat on, my head down, my headphones in. Lost in the run and wham, I take an overhanging oak tree right off the noggin like somebody hit me with a two-by-four. There I am laying on the trail seeing stars and I feel bits of teeth in my mouth. This tree fell across the trail about five and a half feet off the ground and I ran right into it. And when I hit it, it jammed my jaws and <laughs> broke a couple of my teeth. Crazy. So I took the dog home put the uh, tooth pieces on my desk and went out and finished the run. No worse for wear, but I did have to visit the dentist and get a bunch of teeth bonded up. Tuesday, I ran an hour and 45 with my buddy Bob in the landlocked forest. And Wednesday, I rode my mountain bike 18 miles to work and 18 miles home again. And I feel like Superman, but I am beat. I love summer. I love multi-sport training. It's interesting. You're exhausted, but you're not sore or beat up. So it's really interesting. Really fun. We've got a great show for you today. I have a chat with Bonnie Kissinger, triathlete, mom, engineer, and yoga expert. I used Bonnie's yoga routines for my Boston training this year, and I think it helped. And I definitely learned some new tricks. Old dog, new tricks. 
I wanted to plumb her thoughts on the current popularity of yoga and meditation and how we can make it more accessible for everyday runners like you and me. In the first section, I'll chat about how beginning runners can find the time to start their fitness routines. And in the second section, I'll review a book I read last week called The Art of Work that is about how to find your calling. Everything is cool, it's summertime, and living is easy. The catfish are jumping and the cotton is high. On with the show. It's when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Creating space in your life to start a fitness routine or to start running, any new fitness routine, how do you create that space? Well, once you have your head wrapped around your why and you're ready to get started, the next thing you have to do is find time to do it. Of course, the stronger the why, the more likely you'll be able to create a sustainable schedule with fitness in it. A strong why, like you'd better lose weight or you're going to die, that will help you find the time. For most of us with less compelling whys, it's going to take more thought and effort. You are taking on something new. How are you going to fit it into your life? Too many times new runners forgo thinking about this challenge and just try to wing it. And if you want your practice to be sustainable, you might want to take some time to figure out how to get it done on a day-to-day basis. The best way to think about it is like an engineering or design problem. How are you going to proactively engineer your life so that this fitness routine or this running fits in it? The healthy lifestyle experts all say that if we could only find 20 minutes in our days for exercise, we would see a step change benefit to our health. 20 minutes out of 24 hours. That sounds easy, right? That's only one seventy-second of our available time. How many people actually do this? Sadly, very few. Here's the rub. Most of us are already using 100% of our time. Whether it's 20 minutes, 2 hours, or 5 minutes, the time for a new activity doesn't exist. We have to carve out a slot for it. Something else has to give. And the next question you'll be confronted with is, what is your new 20 minutes of running or fitness more important than? What 20-minute thing are you not going to do? And after you've been doing the fitness activity, like running for a few weeks or months, you'll be hooked. It'll be part of your routine, but it doesn't get sticky right away. In the beginning, you you have to carve a space out for it. With all these self-improvement initiatives, most people will just try to squeeze it in. When you squeeze it in, you'll only do it randomly and when time and opportunity present. Or you'll try to sacrifice sleep by default. And I speak from experience when I tell you that stealing from your sleep schedule is a guaranteed way to fail. That is a non-sustainable solution to scheduling. If you have an engineer's mind, you might keep a journal for a week and just track what you're actually spending your time on. This can be a horrifying epiphany when you realize how much time you're spending watching bad TV, playing video games, commuting, or just totally unaccounted for. Maybe something will pop right out that clearly is less important than your new fitness routine. For all you new runners... There are common tactics that we veterans employ to get our workouts in. And having asked this question of hundreds of busy souls who successfully find the time, these are the top 10 strategies. Number one, prioritize. Look at all the stuff you have to do and proactively schedule your workouts during the week. Make an actual appointment on your calendar for the amount of time you'll need to get your run in. Sit down on Sunday night and schedule the whole week so you set the expectation that they will get done. Number two, go early. Hey, nobody likes getting up early. But if you can get your workout done first thing in the morning, you're guaranteed to get it done. The rest of the day is a success, and you'll find it much easier to get to bed on time. Number three, run at lunch. If you have an office job where you have set lunch breaks, use them for your workout. Not only will you avoid 
the temptation to eat poorly, but you will save money and use that time that was previously adding no value. Number four, overlap. When you start thinking about it, you'll find activities in your life that you can overlap with a workout. Kids have soccer practice. Bring your stuff. Get a run in. Live close to work. Run to work. Need something at the store? Run an errand. You will be surprised what you can find when you look. Number five, set expectations. Make sure you let your family and your stakeholders know what your plan is. They may try to sabotage your workouts. It happens. But set the expectation that this is something you are going to do and they need to expect it and respect it. Ask for support. Maybe you'll get some new fans. Number six, find some running partners. This can be your local running club, some friends, some friends online, or a dog. If someone is waiting for you, you'll be less likely to blow off the activity. Use peer pressure positively to help you maintain your schedule. In this case, codependency can save you. Number seven, be selfish. Yes, there will be times when you have scheduled yourself into a corner, whether at work or in your family, and you'll have to stand up for yourself and do your workout anyhow. Hold your ground and eventually they will come around or at least grudgingly respect you for it. Number eight, be flexible. There's no rules other than get your workout in today. How you do this is up to you. It can be at midnight at the local track. It can be 3 a.m. in your neighborhood. Just make one rule. I will get it done. Number nine, create a habit. After a few weeks or months, your running routine will become a habit like taking a shower or brushing your teeth. I hope you you all do that, by the way. You won't have to think about it. Your default setting will be to get up, get out, and go. If you don't do it, you will start to feel uncomfortable. The key to creating habits is repetition. Don't let yourself miss a day or two, even if it's just a walk around the block. When you get started, keep that habit going. Number 10, set a goal. If you create a goal that will pull you to your workout execution, you can find momentum and sustainability. This goal could be anything. Run every day for a month. Run continuously for 30 minutes. Run the local 5K or half marathon. Run every street in your town. Find something that triggers your competitive response that interests you and make a goal out of it. Then share it with your peers so the pressure is there and you can't back out. Many people start an exercise or fitness routine and then they quit. To create a sustainable routine in your life, find a way to stick with it long enough for it to become a habit. And as you get past the first couple of weeks, it may not be easier and it may not be fun, but it will start to change your body and your mind. We all know that exercise will reshape the body, but it also reshapes the mind. This is the concept of neuroplasticity that we often talk about. If you can stick with something, it will rewire your brain so that something you could never imagine becomes something you can't stop doing. Bon chance, mon ami. Your future awaits. And now for our featured interview, because we can always learn something new from others. And some people are super interesting. Bonnie Kissinger, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? <laughs> ah, I'm tired. <laughs> I hear you. I'd, I'd be lying if I said anything different. Yeah. Oh, it's been a long couple of weeks. But yeah, I'm still going after it. I'm still getting there. So you and I were going to talk about yoga because it's interesting to me right now that there seems to be a resurgence in yoga and also in meditation, right? It seems to be the big buzz right now. Everybody's meditating and and sort of close on the heels to that is usually the yoga craze as well whenever people are talking about meditation because they're, they're in the same, you know, historically in the same sort of universe. Why don't you give me the 200 words or less on uh, who you are and what you do? Who am I and what I do? Well, gosh, I'm an adventure crazy person, but mechanical engineer by degree. I am a 500-hour registered yoga teacher, so that kind of means that I've studied a lot. Um, my engineering and what I focus on in studying in yoga 
overlaps a lot. I'm fascinated by the body and how things go together and work. Mom of three boys, triathlete, health coach. That's who I am. Just it's an interesting overlap, engineering with uh, with yoga, because I would think that yoga would be sort of a right brain activity. Although they've proven that this whole right brain left brain thing is a is a myth, anyhow. But <laughs> well, I don't know about that myth, but um, I, you know. And that's, you know, the misconceptions of yoga and whatnot. There's a ton of science to be had behind yoga. And, you know, it's kind of just all in what you study within the yoga. There's there's tons of stuff in my engineering. It, it just goes hand in hand. It's I focus on structural kind of energetic type things. You know, we're energetic beings and, you know, there's electrical engineering and it's not that far off if you kind of so, strip off all the words. Yeah, so if you look at the body as a system, you can yep. do sort of system dynamics approach on it, right? That's interesting. Absolutely. Yeah, that's yep. interesting because most, you know, historically yoga, you know, was invented a couple thousand years ago as a way to practice uh, moving meditation, right? They were very closely coupled to meditation and that whole sort of uh, quasi-religious aspect of it, which is all very, very philosophical and you know, right brain, but your take as more of a, a systems approach is interesting, right? Yeah, I basically just teach about energy management. You know, we only have so much energy, right? As I sit here, super tired. Yeah, me um, too, right? You know, yeah. and that and that's what you know. There's multiple levels of that. There's the physical side of it. You know, energetically, how we eat. You know, energy management, stressing out. There's where meditation comes in. Super crazy handy is. You know, you learn how to meditate. Take out all the weird stuff. Learning how to meditate, all you're doing is learning how to keep yourself in check so you don't have, you're not wasting energy freaking out about the stuff that you don't need to. Simple yeah. as that. Yeah, and it's also a, sort of a, a programming tool because the, the more they learn about neuroplasticity, you mm -hmm. can actually change the change your response to your environment. Oh, and that's, that's so interesting that you bring that up because, um, part of the thing that I wanted to talk about today was, um, having the athletes, helping the athletes to learn kinesthetic lessons in the yoga practice so it will follow you within running. So like glute issues, it could just be a firing issue, which is more neurological than anything. You could have really strong glutes, but how do you rewire things? You can rewire your mind, you can rewire your thought patterns, your habits, your body habits. It's, it's, it's just all in how you look at it. Right. That's why they call it practice, right? So you're, you're, yeah. iso you're isolating, whether mental or physical, the activity that's going to burn in the pattern that you want so that then it's there when you need it. Whether it's, like I said, you know, you being able to respond differently in mental situations or being able to respond differently in physical situations like a triathlon or a, or a race, right? Absolutely. The benefits are just profound. Yep. Right. And that's why they call it practice but that's also one of the most challenging things about these disciplines is you have to sort of be quiet and repetitive which goes against uh, not only our current culture but, yeah. but most of us type a racers uh, mindset right I'd rather be out pounding trails or doing hill repeats than sitting in a quiet room you know uh, working on something else Right. Yeah. Yeah. We we totally feel like, you know, we're not doing anything. We're not getting anything done. We have this long to do list and, you know, 15 minutes to sit down on your porch, listening to the birds kind of connecting with yourself seems kind of like a waste of time. But I tell my clients over and over again, and if I can get them to do it, they're believers in the end is that you will become more effective, more efficient if you're learning how to manage your energy, if you're learning how to do this activity, it ends up being that you have more time and that you get things done better when you're spending time doing it. So that's kind of an interesting flip on it. The inv it's an investment in time for right. your energy. Right. It's an investment. It's a discipline. It's a practice. And yeah. it's just, it's hard. It's hard for people. And that's part of the challenge has always been with, you know, runners or whoever, whatever athletes in yoga, you know, you say, okay, I believe you about the benefits, but I just don't have the focus or I don't want to take the time to learn it to a level where it's going to be effective for me. And that's that gap, right? That's, that's that gap. And how do we build a bridge across that and meet people where they are? 
Right. right? How do you make it accessible? Yeah. I've spent, you know, 15 years in corporate America in busy, busy, so I get it, and raising kids, busy, busy. And that's kind of why I've developed the videos that I have. I've taken most of my yoga online because, you know, that's an obstacle in and of itself, getting to a yoga studio if you have one or going to the Y or, or whatever. But then not only that, I've shrunk them down into small segments or when I teach my athletes, I might only give them three things to do, three poses to do. I'll look at them with my engineering mind. I'll watch what they're doing. I'll see what's the biggest issues right now. What's the biggest hindrance for them for their next goal, either injury prevention or if they want better performance or whatnot or feel better or their back's hurting or their shoulder's hurting. And I'll say, okay, Here's the three things you need to focus on. Here's three stretches to do before you go to bed. Here's, you know, here's the stretch to do when you're running. So I've kind of chunked it down into, okay, we don't need to do a 90-minute practice. If you can squeeze in 15 minutes, and then, you know, I've got all of these separated out. Okay, here's some hip stuff. Here's hamstring stuff. Just in 15-minute chunks to try to make it more accessible. Yeah, so what you're doing is you're doing analysis, finding the bottlenecks, and then doing a bottleneck optimization, right? Yeah, yeah, because, you know, really it, it comes down to everybody's fitting into categories of, of issues. You know, there's rarely people that have the standalone issues. Everybody's fitting into certain buckets. So when I'm talking to people, I can generally assess them through Facebook messaging, you know, set questions. They're like, well, how did you know that? And it's engineering. Everybody's, you know, if you're a runner, you're generally going to have these unless, you know, you have something else odd going on. The yoga people do a good job, like everybody else who has a discipline, you know, they do a good job of complicating it, right? Mm -hmm. And say, yeah. well, you have to decide which of these five disciplines and 12 sub-disciplines you're right. going to do and – it, you know, you have to get to a yoga studio and you have to do this and that and the other thing. And then when you look at most of the practices, it's stuff that just the normal person entering <laughs> into the practice can't do. Yes. And even with your stuff, there's two or three poses that I'm like, I just can't do that. <laughs> can't do it, right? Right. I, I got to grab a hold of a couch. The message is, or the message has to be, we know you can't do that. Here's, you know, here's how you can get to doing that in maybe 52 sessions or maybe you never will, but, you know, here's a way to do that so you don't hurt, don't hurt yourself. Cause my big fear has always been that since I'm so far away from the pose, I'm going to twist something in, you know, someplace that's going to hurt me. Oh, you know what, Chris? That is a, is a big concern and why I speak to the athletes the way I do. I also train yoga teachers and one of the biggest lessons that most don't get First of all, they, they do their own practice while they're teaching, which is a big yoga no-no. But it's hard to teach a class and not do it at the same time. You've, you've really got to practice. It comes down to practice. But also, I teach teachers, don't teach them what you can do. Teach them what they can do a little bit further. Teach them what's going to benefit them. The yoga poses, there's not like this set defined, okay, once you get here, this is the perfect yoga pose. That, that's like silliness. Because if we come back to the fact that yoga is meant as energy management and all we're trying to do is align the body better so it works better, so it's managing its own energy better, you can do that. You can accomplish that with the tight runner by doing triangle on the wall instead of triangle in the middle of the room and they're mostly falling over so they're tense anyway and they're not getting the benefits of the pose because the hamstring's not releasing because you're tense. So a lot of the time I teach, I don't know, kindergarten yoga or whatnot, whatever. I use props all the time. I use the wall. I use chairs. I use couches. I use a car. You know, try to bring it to where they're at, to what their situation is. Some of the poses, yes, I show you kind of where you can go with it for a little bit of a challenge because lots of us like challenges. But, yeah, you can hurt yourself in yoga practice by trying to go too far. And right. you're not getting any benefit at that point anyway. So in all of us type A's, we want to do it right. We want to do it perfect. We feel like it needs to hurt in order to be working. And all of those are going to get in your way of this yoga practice thing. Yeah, and that's, you know, you can say, oh, don't worry. Just do what you can do. Uh, 
Uh, <laughs> but, you know, that is not the right thing to say to a person who's, you know, <laughs> that type of no. person because with that, that, with the way they translate in that brain is you're challenging me. Yeah. Right? So yeah. A, more, a better way to say that would be, okay, y- if you just start and you're not going to get into this pose and don't try, you're going you're gonna to screw yourself up. This is the right way to do it, right? Yeah. And the thing that I realized by doing a lot of this in my run-up into Boston this year, a lot of the hamstring stuff was that it's an interesting combination of – you always think about flexibility, right? Because you see yoga instructors that can wrap themselves around themselves. You always think about mm-hmm. flexibility, which is real important, right? Because everybody stretches. But the balance is such a big piece of it. That, yeah. that right, balance. And then the strength. Because you're having to hold yourself in some of these dynamic poses, there's strength, and it's not brute force strength or even uh, sort of you know uh, being able to hold it for a long time strength. It's proprioception or or mind body connection strength, right? right? Being able to control it's control strength versus doing stuff strength, and I don't know if that makes any sense to you. Oh, it does, and and that's one of the biggest things that the athlete can benefit greatly from with their yoga practices. First of all, you hit it right on the mark. Um, it's almost a pet peeve of mine when people equate flexibility with yoga. You know, yoga is about balance in a joint. Let's talk about the hips. If you have strong hips and flexible hips in the parts related, you don't need to stretch so much. Because everything's balanced out, which is one key concept that people kind of don't get within the yoga practice. The reason why I'm balancing on the BOSU ball. If I can balance on the BOSU ball on one leg, I know that my hips are right where they need to be. I don't need to stretch anymore. I don't need to do any more weights. And I'm going to go out and I'm going to do my half Ironman and I'm not going to be injured. And the other huge benefit, two more, is that that proprioception, what you're talking about. Knowing your body, learning the kinesthetic lessons, learning how to fire your glutes, learning how to lift up your pelvic floor, just with a trigger in your mind instead of just kind of mindfully falling into this puddle and then, you know, in your race and, you know, things kind of fall apart and, and whatnot. But it, it's huge. It's, it's huge. It's cross training. It's injury prevention. It's helping you to increase performance and be one and be happy and, I don't know. It's it's just super crazy awesome. Yeah, that's what they say, right? <laughs> that's what they say. Yeah, no, I find that the flexibility is good, you know, the, the inherent stretching, but the strength and control is much more valuable in, yeah. terms, in terms of in a race situation where you get to the end of a race and you need to pull your form back together. That strength and that control of the strength is very valuable. Yeah. It is. It's, it's just, it's huge. It's that connection with yourself and the, the chatter with yourself. You know, like if you're running a race and you start to feel bad, you know, meditation and just being quiet can teach you this. Take pause and, and have space to ask yourself, you know, those questions. What do I need to do to, you know, do I need to eat? Do I need to do this? Do I need to do that? You know, that type of practice can help you with, with being calm instead of freaking out. Like, triathlon in the water yeah yoga is a really good place to learn how to control yourself mentally so you have a better race so you don't we're going back to energy management right you don't want to expend any more energy in the swim and triathlon that you can get through the swim as efficiently as possible and learning how to keep yourself in check on your yoga mat is a great way to practice that in open water swimming Right. So again, that's the, the mental aspect of it where it sort of bleeds over into meditation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do you see, you know, when you have clients or you have classes, what do you see as the top few mistakes that people make uh, going into this that, that keeps keeps them from coming back? Probably how they feel with, with their tightness, um, the judgment that something's wrong. You know, they can't do this or they can't do that. Really learning that it, it's you know, about the journey towards wherever, you know, hamstrings. It doesn't feel good. And then probably being afraid that it's going to be detrimental to them. You know, a lot of people don't stretch because 
they have this status quo. They they can do what they can do right now, and I don't want to introduce anything new, right? That whole concept. Right. I think that's personally that's the biggest thing that I see in that in time, and they don't see the value of it. But once you go through an injury, and your yoga teacher helps you to understand that injury prevention is all about strength. Yoga has this fascinating way of putting everything together functionally. You know, there's one thing that, you know, your chiropractor will tell you to do those clam things for your glutes, but it's another thing to learn how to fire the glutes appropriately, get kind of like this relationship going on with your glutes because your yoga teacher has yelled at you often enough to engage them, so it becomes more of a habit. And then so functionally, as you're doing these poses, it's not about one isolated muscle. It's about learning how to put everything together cohesively, being strong, but still being at ease. Huge lesson. So most beginners you find hamstrings are probably the primary thing that keeps them from getting into poses. Because, you know, hamstring means, you know, if you bent over right now and tried to touch your toes, you know, most runners would get down to, you know, halfway down their shin. Yeah, and then the judgment sets in. Yeah. That and because of the hamstrings, they have a tight back. Right. And that can be, you know, when you're trying to do these things, it can be very frustrating because you feel like you can't do it. Right. You can't get into the simple pose to get any of the benefit out of it. Like right. uh, just the simple ones where you're sitting on the floor, I find that my back's too tight and I fall over backwards. You know? Absolutely, absolutely. And that's where the ordinary yoga teachers, they're not giving the athletes grace. And that's why, you know, my beginner series, it's for beginners, but it's also for athletes because it is ratcheted down enough. I hardly do anything sitting on the floor with my beginners and the athletes because it's crazy uncomfortable. They're not going to learn anything. They're not going to get anywhere, and they're not going to continue. So most of the time, we need to just start with standing poses. You need to start with learning where your feet are at, where your glutes are at, and what you're doing with your knees. The first couple sessions are almost just taking inventory, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Where is all that stuff? How, what does it feel like? You know, how do you right. how do you connect to it? It's interesting. So then, what are the success stories coming out of your classes and <laughs> online coaching and that sort of thing? You know, what are your big letters that you get in the mail where that make you cry? <laughs> um, a lot of it is IT band issues. IT band issues for the ladies is. You know, core strength, you need some pelvic floor work and glute strength, right? And so IT band issues, boy, those make you cry. And so when I get, you know, my clients come back and say, oh, man, that is way better and my back's feeling better and I'm sleeping better. I'm like, heck, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Or yoga is a really good way of helping the knees, Knee pain, a lot of it can be imbalances within the legs somewhere or whatever you're doing. You can learn a lot and restructure your legs just doing the yoga poses diligently. Listening to my voice enough so then when you're going to other yoga classes, you're hearing me and she's like, oh, coach said, make sure that my knee's not da-da-da-da-da. Right. The alignment. That's enough. Yeah, that's another thing that I, you know, I tell people, I don't care if you go to other yoga classes, please go to other yoga classes. But, you know, for the runners, and that's kind of why I've put the classes together the way I have, I give them, here's the safety features. If you're going to a YMCA class, please remember this one thing. Here's here's where you're going to really get yourself in trouble as an athlete. We don't want our knees to hurt more, and we certainly don't want to do the micro-tearing habit in the hamstrings, which is very, very, very common yeah, for athletes and, in the yoga class. And and what we're talking about here is making sure the joints are aligned when you do the motions because if it's off to one side, it puts the wrong mechanical stress on, on all the bits and pieces, right? Yeah, not competing with your neighbor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That too, I, and it's interesting about the uh, IT band issues because you see people get really, really uh, upset by that IT oh, band yeah. because it's such an insidious injury. The most common way that people will tell you to fix that is to roll it out. Oh, I know. And that, and and that wor- <laughs> it, it works. I mean, it's a temporary sort of thing. It works because yeah. basically what you're doing is you're massaging the tendon and you're bringing blood flow to it and maybe stretching it out a little bit. But a much better way 
is to actually learn how, where it connects and how it connects and stretch it. And that's what yoga is going to give you. So I can see where that's a, a big benefit. Yeah. Right. Because a lot of people, are, you know, they'll give up the sport due to IT band. I have learned through my own injuries and countless times and, you know, let me know what you think about this. I feel like injury prevention and injury healing, the answer is always strength, always strength, always strengthen the opposite counteraction muscle or whatnot. I tend to go with form, you know, so that that strength is balanced. Yeah. Because if it's not balanced, then you get those injuries too because you're torquing something that's in in a non-natural direction and it doesn't have to be off by a lot i mean you can be off by a couple of degrees your foot's hitting the ground twenty thousand times it's going to give you an injury right yeah so it's uh form's really important and then you can balance that strength and that's one of the things that you get from you know doing a triangle pose because uh, you're going to have to have that balance and the strength absolutely right which i'm terrible at triangle pose by the way bonnie hey that's one of my favorites i fall over well, do it on the wall. <laughs> I I tell people all the time, um, you know, triangle pose, stuff like that, the asymmetricness of yoga. That's one of the beauties of yoga is that, you know, it's asymmetric, so you can compare side to side, right? And then that's where we kind of get clues as the engineer kind of evaluating person. That's where you get the clues on one hamstring tighter than the other, one glute not working, the SI issues, all of this stuff, all back issues, the back issues, and then you add on the shoulder issues and then the neck issues, all can stem from one hamstring being tighter than the other, and you would learn that in your yoga practice. Right, so you can use it as a diagnostic as well. Oh, absolutely. It's easy peasy. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you three poses, presto. Right. Where can uh, people find you? I am at... This is this is crazy complex. It's bonniekissinger.com. Bonniekissinger.com. That's right. Well, I will um, include whatever you want to send me for links and stuff. Maybe you can give us a couple of video links. Uh, I'll include that in the in the notes, and uh, people can go out and take a look at you. Absolutely. And, and it's interesting because I don't think we've ever met in the protein form, but it's uh, one of those weird things where I've spent a lot of time with you this year. Yeah, I know. It's kind of, like, kind of fun. <laughs> you, you and I have spent many lunches together in my office uh, doing <laughs> yoga. Awesome. So, uh, all right. It was great to talk to you. I'll let yep. you go and enjoy the rest of your day and your weekend. Hey, you know what? I am. It's my birthday, and I'm, like, super crazy excited. Woo-hoo. Yeah. Birthdays. Remember to celebrate, right? <laughs> Hell, yeah. All right. Don't get in trouble. Mm. All right. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. The Art of Work Thoughts on how to find your working purpose. I try to read a book a week, especially when I'm traveling. I read rather broadly, but will always try to throw in a current business book or a self-helpy type book into the mix. And last week I read a book called The Art of Work, A Proven Path to Discovering What You Were Meant to Do by Jeff Goins. I had heard Jeff interviewed on one of the things that I listened to and had found the topic intriguing. Certainly it's low-hanging fruit. Ask 100 professionals and 98 of them will probably tell you that they don't feel like they are doing what they were called to do in life. Almost no one knows what they want to be when they grow up. Is there a way for these lost corporate souls to find their way? This is what Jeff sets out to explore. First, he gives examples of people who have, through life-changing events and epiphanies, jumped from one path to another and found their true calling. These are inspirational, everyman heroes who were confronted by some life event and rose to use it as a catalyst to find their purpose. Much of the writing is in that breathless blog post prose that's so common these days. I'm guilty of this myself. The prose isn't going to win any awards, but and the book doesn't quite pull off the attempt to converge a methodology with a manifesto, but there are some intriguing and useful bits in here. The author splits the chapters up into sort of the stages of a journey, more or less. 
from your current unease to finding your work purpose. And it all starts in the beginning with listening, listening to your life. Is your life trying to tell you something? Is your true calling right there screaming at you, but you're just not listening? When you find yourself thinking through your future plans and always arrive at the same nexus, maybe you should listen and test that direction out. Once you start listening to the hints that your life is giving you, what do you do then? How do you test that direction out? Well, one way, Jeff suggests, is through a modern form of apprenticeship. When the student is ready, the master appears. Look for those masters in your tentative embrace of a new direction or a new purpose. Look for people that will help you. Many times the master will appear to us in our search, but we won't be open to it and we will miss the opportunity. Be open to apprenticeships to test out your purpose, to begin to scratch that itch. To summarize the first couple of chapters, people do find their true calling. They do find the work they were meant to do. And sometimes it happens with a life-changing event. Sometimes it's an epiphany. But most of the time, it's just a nagging feeling that you have, and you have to learn to listen to it. In order to find the work you were meant to do, you have to be open to it when it comes calling. Quote, we all hear such a call at some point, but may ignore it discarding the voice as a dream. The third thing that is put forth as advice to aspiring work purpose seekers is not to be afraid of work. Sometimes for years or a lifetime, at your craft or art with no reward, the off-sighted 10,000-hour rule is brought into play. Before you can truly appreciate and master something, you have to be willing to do the work, to do the practice. Quote, because we'd rather believe the fairy tale that says some people are just special, that way we don't have any responsibility to act. This is great advice for someone like me who's a dabbler. <laughs> I love to learn new things, but of the hundreds of new things I learn, most are just distractions and hobbies. Just because I like to play backgammon against my iPhone doesn't mean professional backgammon player is my calling. The lesson is that you won't really know if it is the work you have been seeking unless you spend enough painful time working on it, especially when it ceases to be novel and fun. Your true calling won't be easy, but it will complete you. It will be fulfilling. Quote, apparently, that's all it takes. A little tenacity will get you to your calling. The next question, now that I've made myself open to my calling, what do I do? And the answer is simply to take some action in that direction. This is harder than it sounds because most people will still be unsure, so it will take a leap of faith. And even if you can't see the bridge or the road ahead, start moving in that direction. Take small actions, and then the picture will become clearer. Take action in the direction of your suspected purpose. Quote, don't squander your time holding out for someone else to give you permission to start. It won't happen that way. No one is going to give you a map. You will have to step out into the unknown, listening for the direction as you go. And since you are still searching, you can expect to fail. You will set out with a destination in mind and not reach that destination. But because you have started moving, taking action, you will find the direction to your calling along the way. Don't be afraid to try and fail because the failure itself will lend you clues to your true direction. Quote, At the times where you feel stuck, the right thing to do is take a risk and go all in with whatever the scariest option is. So everything up to this point is fairly common advice for living a rewarding and uh, successful life and finding some meaning in it. But the sixth chapter for me was the nugget I was searching for. In all the books I read, I'm satisfied if I can find one nugget that I can use that makes me happy. Sometimes that unlocks a keystone allowing me to access a new frame. And I found this concept in The Portfolio Life. Quote, the basic idea of a portfolio life 
is that instead of thinking of your work as a monolithic activity, what if you chose instead to see it as the complex group of interests, passions, and activities it is? In my own searching, I have assumed there would be one true calling, one pursuit, or one work domain which subsumes all others. I have often scolded myself as having too many interests and too many projects because my frame of reference told me this would lead to mediocrity across the board. What if we were to throw that frame of reference out, that assumption, throw that out, and what if we were to say it's perfectly okay to pursue many parallel lines of work and play as long as they align with a guiding purpose? Isn't this what the great Renaissance men did? Isn't this how the ancient philosophers approached work and life? Work was about knowledge and thinking and service. It wasn't until recently that we parsed it up into separate disciplines. And this was an epiphany to me, being a father, a husband, an endurance athlete, a writer, an entrepreneur, a businessman, are not necessarily in competition with each other. Each serves my purpose in its own way, and without one of them, I might be incomplete. Quote, what do you secretly want to do? Do it. You can have a break point and reinvent yourself. Sensible people reinvent themselves several times, every 10 years. I've been asking the wrong questions. The question is not, since I should only focus on one thing, what should I be focusing all my life energy on? The question should be, how do these myriad things that I pursue align with my life purpose? That answer will allow me or should allow me to better balance my portfolio life, and that just feels right. Finally, the book closes by reminding you that when you work for your true calling, the work itself is the reward. You may not be recognized ever for your effort. You do it because it is your calling, not because you expect the world to give a crap. Quote, this is the role of work in our lives not only as a means to make a living, but as a tool to make us into who we were born to be. We work to create our legacy, whatever it is. Our legacy is our service to the world. In the end, it is about how, by doing what we are called to do, we can make the world a better place because we serve it well. Quote, ultimately, we are called to call others. We are given gifts to be given away. So don't get hung up in the results. When you follow your passion and find your purpose, there are no results. Or more accurately, the results don't matter. They take care of themselves. Quote, this is the work of an artist who bravely steps into their field with bold aspirations while recognizing that the work will never be finished. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. That was a good one, bud. Okay, my friends, you lucky devils. You heard of catastrophically fortunate humans. You got to the end of the episode 4-314 of the Run Run Live podcast. And next week, if all goes according to plan, I'll post-date launch episode 4-313 with some sleight of hand so that future generations will never know there was a gap. Rewriting history we are. As it turns out, I'm racing this weekend. Getting up at the crack of dawn on Sunday and driving down to Plymouth for the Mayflower Brewery Half Marathon. Yeah, I'm treating this as a tempo run, not a race. I haven't been doing any training for road racing, so I just am going to not hurt myself and get a little exercise with my friends. My heart seems to be working okay with the multi-sport I don't drive as much direct stress into it, but it seems to be staying in zone two really well and recovers very quickly from efforts. There's an AFib support group on Facebook that Paula pointed me to, and it seems that this, this exercise-induced AFib that I have, this malady, is quite common. You know what else is really prevalent, my friends? Cancer. Yeah, and that's why I am continuing to support cancer research this summer. I set up a page for my next campaign, which is the for the Hood to Coast Relay, and the link is in the show notes. I'm still fleshing out the campaign, but any donation you can make helps. Cancer sucks. Every little bit I can do, 
I will do. Also, in the show notes are links to a few of Bonnie's yoga videos, the ones that I used and continue to use in my training, and you can check out her site for the resources she has there if you are yoga curious. It's very accessible. It's summertime, and I've already started harvesting salad from my garden. Had one yesterday. Had two yesterday. Going to have some more today. Got me that Swiss chard, lettuce, kale. I'm harvesting. My hops, my berry crops, my herbs, my beans, they're all thriving. My peppers and tomatoes, well, they're a bit sad. I'll have to give them some chemical encouragement this weekend. But my biggest success is the new potato box that we are experimenting with. So how this works is you build a simple board box with four upright posts and flat boards on the sides. And I made mine four foot by four foot, which is a little large in retrospect. So you start by putting in one row of boards. So in my case, like eight inches high. And then you fill that up with soil and you plant your potato sets. And as the potatoes grow, you add boards and soil so the box keeps getting higher. And I'm up to four boards now with no sign of stopping. I'm going to have like 300 pounds of potatoes. But I'll try. You have to keep learning new things. I guess that's what scares me or disappoints me about this heart problem. I mean, if I have to stop going longer and deeper and harder in my sports pursuits, you know, that's a challenge for me. To me, that means a, a curtailing of adventure. I don't do all this stuff for achievement. I do it for adventure. That's the itch that needs to be scratched, and that's how I'm wired. But I can find that other ways. I like to learn. As they say in the business world, I'm a hunter, not a farmer. So how about you? When was the last time you tried something new? When was the last time you tried something outside of your routine, something that forced you to learn, something that maybe scared you a bit? How are you positioned to rise to a new challenge? What would you do if you lost your laptop and all your work for the last six months? How would you react if you learned you had a heart problem or something even worse? These people in this AFib Facebook group, they're very scarcity and fear-focused. They, they bemoan all the things they can't do. Like a recent stream of posts where a bunch of them were whining about having to give up sex due to fear of triggering a heart-racing episode, which is kind of what sex is about, isn't it? All they can focus on is loss, I think, because they started with the wrong mindset. They were never comfortable with what they had to begin with. They weren't grateful for what they had. And with this existing negative mindset, they are less capable to deal with any new challenges. They essentially see their heart problems as a confirmation of their negativity bias. See, I told you life sucks, right? What if, and stay with me here, you instead saw your life and everything in it as a gift? How would that position you to deal with new challenges? Would you maybe see them as opportunities? Opportunities to break with the old, embrace a new beginning, rewrite the future? Maybe these things, as we have heard from so many challenged athletes on this show over the years, maybe these things are not challenges per se, but gifts. Ask yourself, what if you were given that gift of an eraser for your chalkboard? What if you were forced by some event or challenge to wipe that future that you've written down so carefully, wipe that clean and start from scratch? And how about this? What if you didn't wait until that car crash or divorce or disease to slap you upside the head, what if you started now and designed this cycle of renewal into your life? All interesting questions. But what action can we take? It's up to you. There's lots of tools out there for facilitating direction changes. I would suggest having an adventure before this summer is over. Take a leap. I don't know what an adventure is for you. Maybe it's hiking the Appalachian Trail. Maybe it's taking a sabbatical to work in a homeless shelter. Maybe it's writing that book that's been kicking around in your head. Maybe it's a road trip across the country with your kids. God help you. 
Maybe it's walking into your boss's boss's office and saying, I have a plan. I have an idea. Large or small, take a leap. Schedule an adventure in the next three months, large or small, and let us know what it is. Because, hey, you can cause some chaos in your life. (laughs) And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. In my last missive from the field, I told... told, (laughs) I guess I'm out of practice, huh?